looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 517 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today from down under we've got joseph ferguson aka dr pinball less and we're gonna be continuing with the conversation or the topic of orson wells uh martin kessler was on a few weeks ago talking about magnificent ambersons and i think basically through my dialogue with you we've just, i've just decided i'm going to slowly but surely devote entire episodes to every single movie in wells's career so today we're going to be talking about the Scottish play, a.k.a. Macbeth, which is my favorite play by Shakespeare, not my favorite movie by Wells, but it's going to be a fun conversation. So, Mr. Ferguson, welcome for the first time to Wrong Reel. Yeah, fabulous. Thanks so much, James, for having me on. I'm um, excited to be here and just um, wanted to say first up that I've really enjoyed listening to your program over the last couple of years. Nice. Um, Excellent. And yeah, I must warn you been... that I am susceptible to flattery. <laughs> Well, it's deserved on this occasion, so that's... that's well, I'm just thrilled <laughs> to have you here. I mean, I say this, I'm a broken record at this point about this, but I love how on Twitter we just keep carving out this corner of the internet that keeps growing and growing with more and more friends and collaborators, but it's always a special occasion when I meet somebody who is a fan of the divine Orson because... He's really the reason why I got so obsessed with movies. I mean, I was a movie freak before I discovered any of his movies, and I will, I mean, like in college, I was just all in. But I feel like he's been a large part of the fuel that has driven my interest in just film as from a historical standpoint and just as a medium itself. And he is my favorite figure in the history of movies. And I find his life to be just as fascinating and compelling as his movies, oftentimes more so. And luckily, Macbeth, as is the case with all of Orson's movies, tons of chaos before and after and during that we can sink our teeth into. Yeah. But also, it's just cool to be able to talk about Shakespeare again on the show. It's been, I think, five years since I tackled Macbeth on this show when we tackled the Michael Fassbender film. So this is all virgin territory. Okay, yeah. Yeah, just, just uh, similar to you uh, with Wells, I, I'm, yeah, perhaps even more drawn to the 
kind of persona than even his films. As much as I love his films, I just find the man himself um, so kind of complex and interesting. And I can't, I, I kind of, I just keep reading about him and I, I kind of haven't got sick of it yet. And I just, just, there's so many aspects to his life and his thinking and his, his ideas, whether it's about politics or filmmaking or uh, personal relationships, or he's kind of just a, you know, a master of, of holding court. I think that's his, his, his kind of appeal to me and his ability to tell, to tell stories, you know, where, whether they're, you know, based on fact or fiction is, is, you know, up for it's debate. Immaterial, and that, that's yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I don't believe that, but I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, before we get totally into the weeds on Orson, let's talk a little bit about you. Who are you? Like, where, where are you from? And uh, what, are, what are you working on? So on and so forth. So, yeah, um, so obviously from uh, Australia, um, living in Melbourne at the moment. Um, so I was actually, I grew up in a small town on the coast of Victoria, about three hours from Melbourne, um, which actually, funnily enough, um, do you know the, the um, film Quigley Down Under? That's the Tom Selleck one. I have um, not seen it, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, anyway. Part of that was filmed in my small hometown. Nice, Warnable. There's like, a, yeah, there's like there's like a historical village there called Flag Hill, and so they filmed part of the film there. And they said, you know, this is Fremantle. I'm thinking, no, no, I know that. That's over the road from where you live. And then I spent about ten years in Brisbane, um, and so that's kind of my my background in terms of where I've kind of grown up. And quick, and, quick, random question: um, Are you familiar with the YouTube channel? Yeah. Ozzy Man. Possibly. Is he's that, an, is he's that an Australian in... YouTuber who does commentary on like animals fighting and MMA yeah. and people like riding on, like falling off sliding boards or whatever the case may be. He just does color commentary, but he has some videos that I've watched like a thousand times where they just scream with laughter. And occasionally he'll do celebrity interviews with like Chris Hemsworth and people like that when they've got a movie opening. And so he, but he's, he's close to 4 million subscribers, but whenever I need a dose of Aussie culture, unless I'm, uh, I've actually, um, speaking of Aussies, Gidget Von LaRue, a fellow Aussie, she's coming back on the show in a couple of weeks oh, wow. to talk about the films that make Gidget fidget, which should be a nice uh, saucy yeah, topic. <laughs> but I believe nice. she's in Sydney, which is pretty far from Melbourne, correct? Yeah, so it's probably, Probably, I mean, probably only an hour flight. Okay. Um, but but driving, it's yeah. I guess being American, you kind of appreciate distances. Sometimes you talk to people from smaller countries, and they're like, "Whoa, that's you know, talk about distance." And it's kind of like because Australia is so massive that even like a thousand k's isn't isn't too far. Um, well, also it's so, a continent where it seems like all the cities are kind of along the rim or the edge of this giant rock with a lot of yeah. hellish wasteland in the middle. But it's not like people like live in the middle of Australia. They're all on the beach. And so you have to cross this enormous country to get from one city to another. 100%, yeah. So I think it's like at least 80, 80 to 90% of the population is concentrated on the East Coast. Um, and that's just because of access to initially to to water and, and you know, places where we could grow food or our British forebears could grow food. Um, but if, I mean, if you think about kind of the interior, there's, um, you know, lots of different, or there were lots of different indigenous um, tribes that um, inhabited the kind of central part of Australia. Um, but obviously through colonisation, that was severely disrupted and, and whatnot. But it's um, no, it's an interesting, interesting continent, um, just the kind of diversity of landscapes and um, 
different ways that, that, that people have adapted to that, particularly early on where, you know, you had the British coming here and trying to apply British farming practices like, yeah, they're not really going to work. <laughs> or like in, the introduction in of rabbits to your continent and suddenly they oh, just started God, spreading yeah. like, cane, a, cane like a weed. Yeah. yeah, cane toads in Queensland like, yeah, we'll bring these, 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 these toads over from south america and they can eat the, the 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 cane cane bugs that were destroying the crops um without actually doing any sort of testing and then they got out of control that's a massive problem at the moment so it's kind of like yeah, anything you take a species control. anywhere else it's always a bad idea there's a river yeah. somewhere in the midwest in america i think it's in indiana where some idiot released these fish that were not from the region and they get really large and they get really aggressive and what they like to do is they like to jump up and out of the water when anytime somebody like floats down and they are so big and so heavy they knock people unconscious like who are just fishing and that sort of thing but they weren't they're just in a total inv invasive <laughs> species but yeah, when, when it's late at night and I've maybe had one too many uh, hits of weed I tend to watch very strange animal videos and so that's one of the videos that I stumbled across in my, my late night wanderings but I don't want to get too off topic on strange indigenous uh, invasive creatures yeah. because you mentioned before we started recording you're working on a book yeah so um, well, I'm working on a um, chapter in a book. So I work in um, research and teaching and education at a university. Um, and with a colleague, uh, we're writing a chapter for a book uh, that's looking at uh, how people can engage with uh, philosophy through pop culture. Um, and so we've done a chapter on um, understanding uh, the ideas of Charles Peirce, who's an American pragmatist, um, really important thinker that, you know, I, I think is underappreciated, um, and exploring his ideas through the third man. Um, and so it's kind of like a, a chapter about the way in which, you know, through film, in this example, you can actually engage with some really interesting philosophical ideas. Um, so one of my main interests is around the interrelationship between philosophy and film and, and how, you know, through film we can explore quite complex ideas. Have you devoted any time and energy to the philosophical aspects of Roadhouse? Because Patrick Swayze's character is interested in philosophy. He's a philosophy major in that. And at one point, even Sam Elliott says, I thought you'd be more philosophical about it. I have not, but that's definitely something that I should look into. Put it for on sure. your to-do yeah. list, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's funny, when you're talking about the intersection of pop culture and bigger ideas, I found this great quote about uh, Orson Welles and Shakespeare and popular culture by Michael Anderegg, where he said, uh, Orson Welles' desire to transcend the barrier separating the classics, the avant-garde, and popular culture remains, I believe, his most enduring legacy. And in, in my own small, very humble, modest way, that is something I aspire to with uh, Wrong Real. Like in our opening slogan, whether you're talking about Jean-Luc Godard or Jean-Luc Picard, I like to eradicate those boundaries. And I love it. I love how Orson Welles is able to stir together so many different approaches to thinking about Shakespeare. It's not this rigid, stuffy, boring, dry tome that they try to shove down your throat when you're 14, that it's like full of life and energy and that it can be mainstream pop culture entertainment and had been in the past. And it sounds like uh, some of the stuff you're working on with your own writing is uh, at least breaking down some of those artificial barriers that we erect between philosophy, pop culture, etc. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, I think you, you, you're spot on with Wells, particularly around, around Shakespeare. I think one of his prime motivations was um, how do you actually make Shakespeare's writing accessible to a, to a broader audience? Um, and that's not through dumbing it down. It's through exploring different mediums and forms in which Shakespeare's ideas and stories could be expressed. So I think that's um, – I think you're right. Yeah, I think 
part of the appeal of Wells is his kind of intellectual um, ability to engage with the intellectual ideas and then how do you then um, explore those in, in various ways that everyone can kind of engage with because um, I think ultimately he was yeah he was wanting to to connect with people um, he really liked connecting with people sometimes you know he could be quite dismissive he was I think he was fairly insecure in a lot of ways um, which he explored in a lot of his films but I think at, at the heart of his kind of um, motivation for whether it was on the stage or on radio or, or film was to, to, to connect with people through stories. Um, and as you say, those big ideas, what, what are the, what are the big ideas and, um, issues that we need to grapple with as a, as a, as a society and as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think back to when I was a kid and I was first being taught Shakespeare and almost every single teacher that I had initially taught it the wrong way where they would send you home and tell you to read a few scenes or read an act and then come back and talk about it the following day. And it didn't really start to click to me that Shakespeare could be fucking fun until I yeah. played a, a role in Midsummer Night's Dream, my junior year in high school. And so all day, every day, I was just surrounded by people, just teenagers, reciting it, quoting it, practicing it, rehearsing it. And everybody's laughing and giggling and screwing it up and doing a poor job. But when Shakespeare is brought to life by performers on a stage, that is Shakespeare. It's not a novel. It's not meant to be consumed like a novel. It's not meant to be taught like a novel. It's meant to be experienced. And Wells definitely makes his Shakespeare films experiences crazy close-ups and crazy sets. And he makes them, he totally leaves the, the, the theater behind, even though he was well-versed with mounting theatrical productions like he had a very famous version of Julius Caesar where it was a kind of a, a parallel to Nazi Germany and he also obviously Not, had yeah. his, voodoo, his voodoo Macbeth which was the all black Haitian Macbeth which he did up in Harlem and he knew how to make it exciting and make it different and I think a lot of people pushed back on his approach to Shakespeare for a long time because they had a very rigid narrow idea of how Shakespeare should be discussed portrayed staged etc and he got you know, people said a lot of unkind things <laughs> about his overall oh, approach yeah. when it comes to the cinema. But man, like when you think about, there are very few great movies that are adaptations of Shakespeare plays. I mean, Laurence Olivier's Henry V played a big role in popularizing it. And I really enjoy Kenneth Branagh's, his also his version of Henry V. But you can basically count on one hand how many great Shakespeare movies there are. And one of them's not even in English. It's freaking, freaking Throne of Blood by uh, Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 interesting that that balance that I think Wells struck between a literal reading of Shakespeare's work um, and, and being true to the spirit of, of 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 the stories, but really wanting to to play around with how that was expressed and 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 you know chopping up the plays and like you know for example with like Chimes at Midnight, um, which was. I guess the predecessor was the, the Five Kings, the stage production, and how he was kind of just pulling things together. And I think in that way, you know, he was criticised, as you said, you know, because he, he was perceived as not being kind of true to Shakespeare, but I think he was more true to Shakespeare's intentions and the spirit of Shakespeare than more kind of formal, traditional adaptations like Olivia's stuff. And that tension between Olivia and, and Wells in terms of what is the what is the you know the right way to kind of adapt Shakespeare uh, to the screen? Is it a, is it a matter of simply filming and translating the stage to film, or is it is it a process of, of creative conversion, um, which Wells is big? I know like with Wells with the trial, um, not to 
get off topic too much. But, I know. Um, I mean, zig, zig and zag as much as you like. Yeah. <laughs> there's a really great uh, – it, it's on YouTube. Um, it's it's the, the, the filming of the trial, um, and it's Wells doing a Q&A at UCLA, I think, um, in the early 70s, I'm going to say. Um, and it was intended to be like filming Othello, which was kind of properly produced and released. Yeah, it's like, um, an, like an essay this, film about the making of which he did, I guess, sometime in the late 70s he did filming Othello. Yeah, which is cool in itself, but I think this filming the trial is really really great like gary graver was was filming and it's really the footage that's around is really clunky and he you know you can see the end of the reel and like the the sinking of the sounds and all that so it's kind of got that element of wells in motion in the motions of of yeah really experimenting what what film could, could do but anyway so it to feels get to like, a, point, like almost like an outtake from like the other side of the wind or for fake or something like that yeah yeah that's <laughs> it it's kind of in that in that kind of kind of area um and anyway, someone in the audience, well, there's lots of interesting questions. And also the thing about this is that it, it's kind of, Wells had a lot of, you know, fans and people who kind of worshipped him. But in this case, it, what, what jumped out to me was that how many people, even at this stage in, in the 70s, were, were quite critical of what he was trying to do. And so, for example, with the trial, um, there were questions around, you know, why did you change so much of the of the original story, for example, the ending? And Wells's first point was that, What's the? Why would you bother simply literally translating a book into a film if you're not gonna yeah, take are, advantage like of the, the book? Are, the book already exists. Yeah. Yeah. Read the book. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of a simple response. His other response around the ending was, um, you know, in the film, it's kind of. I haven't read the book. I have to. I haven't um, read it either. But yep. I remember in Bogdanovich's book, this is Orson Welles. He said that after World War II, he looked at the idea of a Jew surrendering to being executed at the end in such a passive way, he rejected that and he wanted him to be more defined at the end. And so one thing about I have not read the original text. I've only read The Metamorphosis and I read, actually, no, I read In the Penal Colony and I read The Judgment. Those are the three Kafka stories that I've read. I visited his birthplace in Prague. I think right, Kafka's yeah. the man, but I've been kind of lax in my duties when it comes to actually reading his material. Oh, me, me, me as well. And and yeah, that's, that's the point he makes around that ending is that he, he couldn't, I can't remember exact phrasing, but he basically said, you know, I made the film, the trial after the Holocaust and the book was written before. I couldn't, I I could not justify to myself having an ending where it was any suggestion of kind of submission. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an insight into how he thinks about the relationship between literature and, and film. And also, I mean, you know, there's the immortal story, which the whole, whole film is around storytelling, which recently I've become... It's kind of pushing its way up my list of favorite Wells. I films. love the Immortal Story. I saw it at uh, the Film Forum, and I'd seen it before on VHS, a really crummy transfer, and I just totally disregarded it. And then when I saw it at the Film Forum, fully restored, it just came to life, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I mean, also, Wells is a giant Isaac Dennison fanatic. Apparently, he was such a fan of Isaac Dennison that he was planning on meeting her because Isaac Dennison's a, 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 a pseudonym; it's female. He yeah. went to her hometown to meet her. And he was so nauseated and so nervous and so like filled with like anxiety that he just sat in his hotel room and then went back to the airport and couldn't. And once again, is this total Wells bullshit? Maybe, but that's what he, <laughs> but he, but he claims he was too nervous to follow through on the meeting of meeting a meeting Isaac Dennison. Well, I think um, he lists you know he's got in terms of kind of author you know literary figures he's got Shakespeare's kind of you know at the, at the very top and then Dennison second. So it's kind of a you know, and he was he was well read, uh, Wells. That's you know, it's obvious. He's just he could just talk, you know, endlessly about 
literature and history and and whatnot. So it's kind of um, it's another one, yeah, the immortal story that that kind of really gets his his obsession with storytelling and and how that can relate to the key texts and and you know the history of writing and and what film could do and then also how film maybe relates to to uh, television and radio and so forth. Um, well, that's been the biggest difference about talking about Wells recently versus when I first got into Wells. I first got really obsessed around 1996, 1997, and obviously Citizen Kane was already in the Hall of Fame, so was Touch of Evil, but a lot of his other films were notoriously difficult to find, or if you could find them, you really couldn't find them in a decent, like any decent condition. Yeah. And But it, what I've noticed in the 21st century, so many films like The Immortal Story or Chimes at Midnight or The Other Side of the Wind or whatever the case may be have become so much more readily available. People are revising their opinion of Wells, and people in the 70s already thought he was one of the greatest filmmakers ever, but now it's like, well, goddamn, people didn't appreciate just how good he truly was because it was so hard was. to see his stuff at the time. Yeah. And I feel like for a young film fan now, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. Well, it's weird. I'm, I'm, I'm divided because on one hand, I had to work so hard to find his films. It yep. intensified my interest in the subject. On the other hand, if you just want to have like a Orson Welles marathon one weekend and watch his entire career, you can also do that too. So I guess people today are a little spoiled, but at least the films are available. And so people can actually appreciate just how good a movie like Chimes of Midnight really was. Or even in the case of Macbeth, which you're going to be talking about, when it came out, it was truncated. They redubbed it. Mm -hmm. And it took until I think about 1980 before the the full version with the Scottish Scottish accents was finally restored. Restored, yeah. Which is interesting. through line in Wells's filmmaking is this this process of him, uh, you know, constructing the film that he wants to put together, and then having to deal with with the studios and 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 their perception of what the audience wants, which comes up continuously. I mean, yeah. uh, every film after you, Citizen Kane, has, yeah, yeah. has problems. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so like that was, it was. I mean, you know, with Kane, it was just like he was like just kept on asking for more and more ridiculous stuff, and they're like keep giving it to him. He's like, all right, all right, yep, I'll do it. And then he had this sweet deal, and he and he went ahead and you know, you know, made the film, and and I don't know how great it is, but from that point on, it was pretty much, you know, that that tension between Wells the Maverick, um, you know, positioning himself as a maverick, and and these studios, which over time, I mean, just just reading about him, he kind of didn't have such a big problem with the traditional kind of Hollywood studio bosses, but once you got kind of into the into the you know, late 60s, 70s, um, not that I'm an expert on this, this history, but he, he kind of had a respect for that, the old school studio bosses who were kind of upfront and he could kind of deal with them. But moving later on into, into Wells's life and how he was trying to negotiate, um, you know, smaller projects and, and having to deal with, with a whole different way of, of, of producing and, and, and making films. So he's kind of a, a, a um, I don't know. Sometimes with Wells, I think he, he made things more difficult for himself. And How other times, dare you suggest well, that actually, Wells was yeah. difficult or, you know, yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, his life was chaos in the best possible way. Yeah. And Simon Callow's books do such a brilliant job yeah. of capturing the larger than life, just almost like regal pain in the ass that he could be at times and the way he would stay at the best hotels and he could be. Anyway, he was this larger-than-life figure whose economic prospects kept getting narrower and narrower, and he didn't like that. And uh, it just it created this incredible tension. But on the other hand, he could be so fast and so economical. Like with Chimes of Midnight, he shot the entire movie for the equivalent of like a craft service budget. And when you watch it, especially the battle of um, 
Oh, what the hell is the uh? What's the, what's the battle where um Hotspur gets killed? I'm totally blanking. Uh, good question. Uh, no, no, I don't know. And, and in head, but... the the scene where Hal and Hotspur have their battle, Hal takes him out. Yeah. It's a fucking. It's like something out of Braveheart, and he shot it for like ten bucks. I mean, it's it's just incredible. So, yeah. his reputation was was both deserved and unfortunate because when he can't when he, when the gun was up against his head he could move fast and he could give you champagne for the price of beer but i can't recommend more highly the three simon callow books and he's got a fourth on the way but do you have any particular yeah. favorite books uh, on his career that have really kind of opened up his life for you as a reader yeah i mean i mean the callow ones are, to me are the, are the best uh, because what what simon callow does is he he really mixes the kind of fact with fiction so it's really enjoyable as, as a story that Callow's weaving about wells um but at the same time you got this the in-depth research is just really blows my mind that the yeah. amount of research he's putting into those books that it's, it's not- the definitive research project in terms of just all in i mean like i said three volumes deep and he still hasn't even covered like the final the latter part of his career that we keep referring to with such admiration yeah and that, that comes out next year i think because i asked him on twitter and he goes 2021 Wow, and I'm like, yep, I can wait. So, yeah, and he wasn't planning like you're saying. Like, I think three. He only planned three books, but he kept writing, and it's just like, there's more to go. I need. Well, hello, to Americans need- got so into politics in the '40s when Orson Welles was having these like sit downs with FDR and things like that, and all these fireside chats. And so I was like, whoa, you're not going to – I mean, I was blown away by just how little, not how little time spent on the films, but Welles did have this giant political career, maybe the wrong way to phrase it, but he was very involved in certain progressive issues in the 1940s. Yeah. And so Callow goes all in on that because why? these books are not about Wells, the filmmaker. These books are about Wells. And so he's exploring Wells, every exactly. aspect of his life. Yeah, and that, 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 that's what really opened my eyes to, yeah, who Wells was. Because, I mean, I, I didn't, uh, in terms of film, like I've always been in, in, into movies as a kid. And I remember we got a, me and my siblings got a, video camera for Christmas once a year. It was like the best thing because we could like write scripts and like film around movies and, and, you know, add in the music and whatnot. Um, but it's only like probably the last five years that have really kind of expanded the, the, the films that I'm watching and really embracing the, the diversity and, and among that's Wells. And, you know, I'd heard about Kane and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, this sounds like it's good and people keep going on about it. So it's kind of, yeah, one of those films. So I watched it and I'm like, initially first watching it, I'm like, yeah, there's something about this that isn't really – it's not a normal film experience. Um, and, and, and kind of from that point, I've, 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 uh, I got kind of really invested in his films. And then reading the Callow stuff, I started really connecting with Wells, the, the, the man, the person, and, and less, so, less so the films, and particularly the, his, his involvement in, in, in politics, as you point out. Um, and, and during a period where it was – you know, pretty dangerous to be doing um, and saying those types of things. I mean, compared to today where, you know, a celebrity could not, – not that I want to, you know, play down, you know, the, the, the right for celebrities to, kind of, you know, contribute their thoughts on these issues, but say it's a lot easier for someone to come out and say something and, you know, get a lot of credit on Twitter or, or social media. But back then it was like, you know, if you, had, if you said something, you kind of had to, you know – you know, walk the talk. Um, yeah, and, and Hollywood, Wells did that. definitely, by the late 40s, you're starting to deal with the House of Un-American Activities and the yep. Blacklist and so on and so forth. And yep. so 
people like to think of the Hollywood Golden Age as this like just lovely golden age where everybody was kind of walking around naked in paradise. And it was a very complicated, very fraught period. And Wells, in I think in the late 30s, early 40s, was very much in step with the, the political climate of the time. But there were a lot of filmmakers like Charlie Chaplin and Orson Welles who by the late 40s were basically being investigated by the FBI and, and you know getting into a lot of trouble. And it's during yep. this period where he's making Macbeth, which is... I think a $700,000 film, his career as a filmmaker had been totally derailed by, Ma- by Magnificent Ambersons. And if you want the, the full story on that, check out my episode with Kessler. And obviously he'd been involved awesome with things well, like... Awesome by the way. Oh, thank you, thank you. And he'd been involved yeah. with things like Journey into Fear, and he'd been acting in things like Jane Eyre. But his prospects as a commercial director were starting to shrink. And Lady from Shanghai had a lot of problems with Columbia... And um, I don't know, it's a weird thing where this film got severely hamstrung by its limited means. But on the other hand, it's one of the more interesting aspects that you have. Like, he's working with Republic on like these sound stages that are reserved for Westerns, Westerns, using a lot of leftover props and wardrobe. And it's like this strange, dark, nightmarish, expressionistic like horror movie masquerading as a Shakespeare movie. Or a Shakespeare movie masquerading as a horror yeah. movie. I'm not quite sure. And I don't think it's as strong as Othello, and I don't think it's as strong as Times of Midnight, but I've seen Agreed. it now five, six times, and I always say, like, oh, it's not really like one of my favorite Wells movies, but any movie you watch that many times, and I've seen it in the theater twice, there's oh, something, cool. yeah, something yeah, yeah. going on, so let's start unpacking and breaking down this movie. By the breaking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. So foul, unfair a day I have not seen. A drum. A drum, Macbeth does come. All hail, Macbeth! Hail to thee, Thane of Gloms! What are these? That look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aren't. Speak if you can, what are you? Hail! What is you do? Hail! Hail! Hail to thee! into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not. Speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favors nor your hate. Hail! Lesser than Macbeth and greater, not so happy, yet much happier. Thou shalt get king, though thou be none. So Stay, you imperfect speakers! Tell me more! I am the Thane of Glans, but how of Cawdor? The Thane of Cawdor lives, a prosperous gentleman. And to be king stands not within the prospect of belief, no more than to be Cawdor. My Lord Macbeth! Kind gentlemen, the king hath happily received, Macbeth, the news of thy success. As thick as hail came post with post, and everyone did bear thy praises in his kingdom's great defense. We give thee from our royal master thanks. He bade us from him call thee Thane of Cawdor. What can the devil speak true? In which addition, hail, most worthy Thane, for it is thine. The Thane of Cawdor lives. Why do you dress me in borrowed robes? Who was the Thane lives yet? 
but under heavy judgment bears that life which he deserves to lose. Treason's capital, confessed and proved, have overthrown him. Gloves and Thane of Cawdor. The greatest is behind. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill. Cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me an earnest of success? Commencing in a truth. I am Thane of Cawdor. So, how did you first encounter Macbeth, either as a play or as a movie? Just uh, kind of ease us into the conversation of the Scottish play. So, uh, Macbeth, so as, you, as you mentioned earlier, um, throughout schooling you're exposed to, to Shakespeare stuff. And I remember doing studying Macbeth maybe year nine or ten. Um, so the actual the text itself and also watch the Polanski film in nice. class. I love the Polanski <laughs> film. I, I'm, I'm a big fan I'm, of it. It's pretty great. Yeah. We, we found it hilarious. I don't know why. We found it hilarious. Like when the McDuff child gets killed, I don't know, for some reason we were like, that's really funny. Like everyone's breaking well, out. Like, I think the ultimate it was kind of a joke is know, that you have Hugh Hefner producing a Shakespeare yeah, yeah. <laughs> movie directed by Roman Polanski when he's in yeah. like the deepest, darkest death spiral after the murder of Sharon Tate. It's like this strange, dark, nightmarish film, but it's got some really interesting things going on in it. Yeah, so... Um, that was kind of, I guess, in terms of my film exposure, exposure to, to, to Macbeth and, and um, you know, one of his, his, his shortest plays. So I, I find it, yeah, I'm still, until I started watching Wells' films, I wasn't really, I didn't really kind of connect with Shakespeare, but through Wells' films, I've kind of started started to do that. And I think, you know, Macbeth as a, as a, as a, as a play is a really good entry point into into you know, the themes and ideas that Shakespeare was, was wanting to explore and, and, and the way he went about that. Especially, um, I think, for the unconverted, I mean, it's got ghosts and insanity and murder and witchcraft and all these supernatural elements, whether they're internalized in Macbeth's mind or whether they're external influences acting upon him. But for if you're like a 15, 16-year-old kid, there's a lot for you to sink your teeth into, whereas something like The Tempest is not necessarily mm-hmm. the easiest gateway drug or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, saw a, a really, really poor um, production of The Tempest at <laughs> university production a couple of years ago, and it was one of those ones where, 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 where with theatre, if 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 the it's not right, really pulled off very well, you end up feeling kind of awkward for people. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those. I got but, so but, spoiled. Yeah. The, my senior year in high school, I studied in the UK for nine weeks. And one of our courses oh, wow. was Shakespeare. And when we we cracked open three plays, and every time we did. One night we'd read it and have to do a, a plot outline or a breakdown just so we knew what the hell was going on. Then yeah. we'd go see it at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford, so like, as good as it gets. Yeah. And then the next yeah. day we'd get a lecture on it from a professor and have to write a paper on it. So you just all you thought about for like two or three straight day, days was this one play. And by the end of it, play. you really knew it backwards and forwards. So I saw Henry V yeah. on the stage and I saw uh, Twelfth Night. and I mean, It was just absolutely magical. And so that was another moment that really helped open up Shakespeare for, Shakespeare for me as an audience member. But with Macbeth, my first real aha moment, my junior year in college, I sat down with a bottle of Dewar's, uh, Dewar's blended scotch whiskey and just read the play in one sitting for a class and got totally shit-faced and had like the time of my life. Like Getting hammered and reading Macbeth is actually a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the potential for... As you said, there's lots of uh, entry points for, for, for you know young readers and, and, and younger people to kind of get into get into um you know themes of you know witchcraft and paganism and and 
um, you know, stabbing people in the back. Yeah, and, child and, murder know, and all kinds ambition. of wonderful things. Yeah, I know. It's just, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one. It's, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's Shakespeare's brutal. Um, and and I guess uh, to get to get back to to Wells just for a moment and and his motivation for for for, for making um, Beth was his, um, you know, had this real kind of connection with Merry England. Um, and I think in terms of films, that's probably best captured by, by Chimes at Midnight. But he, he often said that he felt like a, a man out of out of time um, and that a lot of people, you know, portrayed him as a, as a Renaissance man, which he was in a sense, but he, he kind of really connected with, with, with you know, the the time and, and places that were portrayed by, by Shakespeare. Um, and so that, again, that comes through strongly um, in his films and, and yeah, in another definitely life, with, he would have me. been Falstaff. Sir John Falstaff and Orson Welles right, that's yeah. so much overlap. That would have been his idea of heaven just to hang out in taverns and get ripped and tell tall tales and rob people and that, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think he was, he was, yeah, yeah. Born to play that role. Um, and I think if we think of just the, the three, um, Shakespeare films that he made, um, I think his portrayal of o- Othello is probably the weakest, agree, um, at yeah. least to me. Um, Macbeth, he's, as we'll, we'll get to in a moment, I think he's, he's the best. Yeah, in Othello, it's all he's, about the performance of, uh, of Iago. Iago's the character oh, in that. So and so, that, so that's, good. Why, that's why oh. you got to watch it. Yeah, yeah um, and his Macbeth is good, and, and then his Falstaff's the, the, the pinnacle. But yeah, I think, think what we'll talk about with Macbeth, at least, is the supporting cast for me was was perhaps a little weak. Um, but 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 Wells' Macbeth really... I don't know. He, he he really he really brings it um, um, to that performance again. Not 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 as you know um, compelling as as Falstaff, but that was kind of as you as you said they're, they're one and the same. <laughs> and he apparently he uh, visualized it or pitched it as like the perfect cross between Wuthering Heights and Bride of Frankenstein. And I think yeah. for this period, that's the best way to go about it. It's like treat it like a straight up horror movie because you've got witches and murder and forests on the move and so many delirious qualities that you can flesh out. And he really made a, a massive pronounced effort to make it feel less stagey, even though it's, he's obviously on a soundstage. Yeah. But the key with Shakespeare is to get that camera moving and show it in a way that you would never see it. On, what you don't want is just to put the camera out in what would typically be the vantage point of the audience and then just have them perform the play because at that point you might as well just go see it in a theater and that's, that's the way you should do exactly. it. Exactly. And I think given the limited means, he did a pretty goddamn good job. And I think the most fascinating description I ever heard of this movie was by Jean Cocteau who saw it with Wells at the Venice Film Festival and he, got, he described it as a film maudit, which means like cursed, misunderstood film. Yeah. And he meant that in the noble sense of the word. But he said, Orson Welles' Macbeth leaves the spectator deaf and blind. And I can well believe that the people who like it, and I'm proud to be one, are few and far between. Orson Welles' <laughs> Macbeth has a crude, irreverent power. Clad in animal skins like motorists at the turn of the century, horns and cardboard crowns on their heads, his actors haunt the corridors of some dreamlike subway, an abandoned coal mine, and ruined cellars oozing with water. Not a single shot is left to chance. The camera is always placed just where destiny itself would observe its victims. Like that might even be slightly hyperbolic, but after you read something like that, you're like, whoa, like, did I miss something? Like, I need to revisit this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think. It, I mean, so he shot it what within it was like twenty one days, three weeks, or yeah, so. yeah, 20, it's insane, yeah, and 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 
part of the deal with Yates at Republic was was you know it's got to come in, um, you know, on budget. Like it, it's it's you know, while I was watching the the doco that came with the olive film blu-ray um and little background stuff on yates and how you know he was a gambler but it, but but he he wanted to minimize his risk and so he thought um wells was a good bet and and wells i think appreciated his his investment um in this idea and and, and you're right you can see you can see the limitations obviously but but when you appreciate what wells was trying to do um and i think make a point around you can make a shakespeare film uh you know fairly cheaply um, and and you know within a, within a short time span, um, and 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 he achieved that. And, and visually, it's just some of it's just particularly the use of lighting um, is amazing. And and Wells said um, on on a number of occasions that you know his background in theatre, he would actually light the set and then position the actors, not the other way around, gotcha. um, as traditionally done. Because he said, um, I, I love it. He he had, has a line about. Um, you know, giving giving the set and the physical materials a chance to exert their presence, um, and one way to do that was to light and then position um, the actors. And, and I, as far as I can tell, that works really well for him because <laughs> every every one of his films, the, the lighting's just spot on. Particularly in this, the, the the contrast between you know the murky shadows and then that and then that much brighter light um, is really... Yeah, the light can be really like harsh, but it creates all these wonderful contrasts, and the use of like mist and smoke throughout helps disguise the fact that you're on a set for like low-budget westerns, as opposed yeah, to like, westerns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> medieval yeah. Scotland. But yeah. I just love that fact that it's like... The idea of converting Shakespeare into like a genre film, and I think so many people think of Shakespeare yeah. as high art, that it's highbrow, it's like refined culture... But I feel like Shakespeare is a lot more fun when it's down and dirty and kind of dirty. body. And I yeah. think Wells embraces that body side where people are covered in filth and muck and they're drunk and they're having sex. And it, it's yeah. not – it's you, it, you're not visiting a cathedral. It's a very different kind of artistic experience. And I think that's why his Shakespeare films have aged so well. So well, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't seen any of Olivia's – adaptations but i'm yeah i'm guessing that they were more uh that kind of you know refined uh you know for, formal portrayal of shakespeare well, kind of fifth i think is his best but it was basically like a propaganda film that was made by olivier to kind of keep the british end up during world war ii and so it did yeah. help stir a, a nationalistic spirit at a time where the country was facing quite literally like a, a, an existential crisis against a you know superior yeah, yeah, yeah. armed opponent and that sort of thing. So it's interesting from that point of view in terms of how he's really trying to stir national pride. But when it comes to direction and style and mood and atmosphere and just the overall tone, I think Wells is the vastly superior director. Director, yeah, and and I think that that t the kind of tension between the two approaches to filmmaking really came to a head because uh, I think Olivia's Hamlet came out in 48, so the same time yeah. as, as... And it was as a huge Macbeth. hit. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a huge hit. And then you got Wells, everyone's going, what, what is this? What have you presented to us? <laughs> you know, Wells in the form of this Macbeth, like what, what's, what's going on? Again, ahead of his times in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that made him a little bit insecure is, you know, that that the fact that Olivia was getting all this attention for, for these fabulous adaptations of Shakespeare and, and Wells was, was, I think, you know, as, as you're pointing out, doing, doing a, um, 
uh, a lot more in terms of of uh, realizing uh, Shakespeare's vision in a in a cinematic form. Um, but but perhaps people weren't ready at the time. And and yeah, as you say, like you watch the Wells ones now, and you're like, this is. I can connect with this, you know, now in, in 2020, just as much as, as, um, you know, you could have connected with it back then. And even, even in, if they had, you know, films in, in Shakespeare's time, <laughs> as, well, as silly also, as that is to say. need to remember that when Wells did this, he wasn't really trying to make this giant opus. He, yeah. on his radio show in the late thirties would crank out Shakespeare plays or classic literature, oftentimes in an yep. hour, and he would condense and reduce yep. and really like streamline. And he loved taking something like Hamlet, which is like a four-hour play, and trying yeah. to do it in an hour. And he would do things like yep. cut the, the to be or not to be speech because like, well, it doesn't really push the plot forward. I need to just yep. include the bare essentials just to get from beginning to end. And he approached this film in a similar way. And in 1953, he did this interview where he said, my purpose in making Macbeth was not to make a great film. And this is unusual because I think every film director, even when he's making nonsense, should have as his purpose the making of a great film. I thought I was making what might be a good film. And what if the 23-day shoot schedule came off might encourage other filmmakers to tackle difficult subjects at greater speed. Unfortunately, not one critic in any part of the world chose to compliment me on the speed. They thought it was a scandal that it should only take 23 days. Of course, they were right, but I couldn't write to every one of them to explain that no one would give me any money for a furthest day shooting. However, <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the limitations of the picture. But I think he recognized that when you're dealing with classic literature or classic plays, they don't all need the prestige, big-budget approach. Sometimes you can just take War and Peace, which is like a 1,000 pages, and just do a one-hour radio show and then move on with your life. Oh, I, w- I wish he had have, have, had made War and Peace because he had that in the in the pipelines. Um, didn't happen with, like so many of his projects. That's, that's a part, of, part of the somewhat depressing thing reading about Wells is, is all the these... What might have been. The one oh, thing that I really painful. wish I'd seen, and Simon Callow fleshes out so beautifully in his third book, is the evolving nature of Wells's stage production of Moby Dick. And it sounds Moby like Dick, yeah. it was complete madness and they were reinventing yeah. it daily. And sometimes Wells had like broken ankles and he would just sit in a wheelchair and just talk to the audience and things like that. But it's like, I would kill to just watch Wells with broken ankles, sit in a wheelchair and talk to the audience for two straight hours. <laughs> but yeah. the way the way Callow talks about all the various iterations of Wars, of uh, Moby Dick, I don't know where the hell he found all that fucking material, but it was material. for me it was my favorite passage of that book. Yeah, that's that's that, that's the getting back to the Callow books. That's why they I think they're so so valuable as as a resource on um the the history of Wells and the development of his ideas. Um Although we do get Wells and John Huston's film doing his speech when he's up there like in like the bow of a boat in a church. And he, like, he cli- Father Maple, and he climbs up that ladder to get up there. And apparently he's so nervous about climbing that rope ladder, he swigged yeah. like an entire bottle of brandy before, <laughs> before climbing up there. And I think they did it like in one or two takes, but it's ast- astonishing stuff. Wells obviously knew the material well. Really well, yeah. Uh, just a quick, quick tangent. There's a um, uh, film I saw two years ago, uh, Tea with the Dames, which is um, basically it's just a, a, a conversations between um, Maggie Smith Eileen Atkins, Judy Dench, and Joan Plowright. And there's some really interesting stuff that comes up in that about Wells and Olivia, because um, Plowright was was um, married to Olivia, and she was in the uh, Wells's stage production of Moby Dick. Um, and as an insight just um, into what it was like to work with these 
with these two men is really fascinating from these these four actresses who are you know been in the business so long um and a lot of people found the film boring but i was like really <laughs> i got a lot out of it just in terms of that adding that 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 layer um again which which um comes through in in Kellett, um those books is, is why they're so so interesting is that that um that kind of um, yeah fleshing out of, of relationship between um wells the the, the film the filmmaker and the and the the uh, the thespian um and yeah i mean just thinking at the moment i'm reading a a book by the grandson of of um skipper hill so the roger hill the headmaster at um todd school footballs where where wells attended um i think it must have been five years or so i think from when he was about 11 to 16 um before he headed off off to ireland but one of his and chief, traveling around and uh, kind of mentors or surrogate father figures like wells that is a young man in the absence of his father sought out a lot of mentors and father figures and it seems definitely. like this was the key one of the key points in his life where they really recognized he's probably not going to respond to a normal standard kind of rigorous education, but let's try to create an environment yeah. where he might flourish and develop Fine. his talents. Yeah. And just, just as someone who, who teaches and, and researches in education, um, the school, the Todd school, that was, that's progressive even for now. Um, uh, in terms of, as you're pointing out, it was, it was really about giving the kids a, opportunity to to kind of invest in projects and and you know work with their hands and their minds and 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 put together something that they could be invested in and actually care about um and and really really connect with and that's certainly coming through in this book um which is which is basically phone recording uh recordings of um phone conversations between roger hill and wells um in just probably two years before Wells died, so it's like 83, 84. Um, and what comes through there is that how essential Wells's experiences at the school were in terms of his development as an individual and also I think more, more specifically for our discussion at the moment, um, his, his connection to, to Shakespeare and the stage. Um, and what was, when did and, they do Everybody's Shakespeare? Yeah, so that would have been, uh, that must have been... Like mid-30s or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would have been. Yeah, it was. I think they were drafting it even potentially when Wells was in Ireland, um, and they were corresponding about it. And yeah, that that that's important as well um, because it, yeah, it speaks again to Wells's motivation even at an early age to really open up Shakespeare to, to a broader audience. Um, and I, I'd love to read, love to read those. Um, haven't been able to track down affordable copies, but that idea of of, of a supporting text to really encourage people to engage with um shakespeare's ideas is it's fascinating and come it comes through from from that relationship with 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 roger hill and even in in the 80s when these conversations are happening on on the phone between the two of them um you can see that 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 i think potentially this was the most important relationship in in wells's life um and they're their best their best buddies even at this point so roger's like 89 and and wells is like 70s, um early like 70s, 70s or so. yeah, yeah 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 and ro- ro- roger outlived him which is really tragic kind of suitably tragic um and they just yeah it's kind of i guess with wells yet yeah, you know if, if 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 you look at his relationship with women in particular um often often you know uh, you know, short-lived and, and, and full of, you know... Yeah, like he went through a phase yeah. where he loved ballerinas because of their calf muscles and that sort of thing. But I think apart from Oya Kodar, yeah. he didn't have really like yeah. a, a lot of long-term relationships in his life. He went from a, a series of very passionate flings. And I think also just because in, yep. the, in his 20s, 
he was a celebrity by 21. And if you're a celebrity by 21, you're going to fuck around and have a lot of affairs and that sort of thing. And so he just uh, burned a trench through the 1940s. Yeah, and, and, and even when he was at the Todd School for Boys, he, he dips into some of those early experiences <laughs> um, and, and of, his, of his adventures. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating um, insight in, into that relationship that, that I haven't really come across um, in, in other books um, and an appreciation for – I don't know, I, I get a, you get a kind of feeling or a sense of well that you don't get through some of the other things that have been written about him, um, particularly from – perspective of of roger hill who um he really cared about him and i think wells idolized him and 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 vice versa um and and a lot of the things that wells did for the school um even even once he'd left i mean it closed in like the 50s but he he donated money and he'd go and visit and um and getting money out of wells was not an easy thing because i know it was short he basically never had enough of it from like 1942 onward <laughs> like onwards yeah he was yep. very rich in his early 20s and then he increasingly had yep. less and less and less but once again he was not afraid to stay in the best hotels even if he didn't have a uh, two pennies rubbed together yep. and anyway he he yep. brought a lot of these problems on on himself but let's start digging into some of our favorite scenes from this movie sure. because i think while it's not necessarily the most accessible film for people who are the uninitiated. I remember uh, early on in the history of the podcast, we did an Orson Welles episode for his 100th birthday, and the Film Forum hosted a screening of every single movie that he had ever made. And I took my co-founder, Mikhail, to see Macbeth, and I think this was like the second Orson Welles movie he'd seen. He'd only seen Kane at that point. And like 20 minutes in, Mikhail basically curled up in a ball on his side in his chair and just started ignoring the movie outright. And I was like, oh, this is not going well. And then we came back the next night and we watched F for Fake and he was enthralled and loved it. But I think there's some scenes like the opening bit with the, the yeah. witches speaking with like, you know, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burning, cauldron bubble. I mean, it is as good as any horror movie from any period you care to mention. And it sets the tone perfectly. It's it's really um, just watching again the other night. The opening is uh, really kind of really gets its 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 um, hooks into you and pulls you in. And I think that that portrayal of the of the witches, the, the weird sisters, uh, is is if a you know film adaptation of Macbeth's going to fall down, it's going to be there. It's kind of hard to hard to uh, yeah portray witches in a way that doesn't come across. As you know, somewhat cliched or lame, yeah. and and Wells really puts his own stamp on. And they're, they're, it's simple; it's not complex. And I love their their the kind stabs. of stabs. That they, the stabs yeah. are amazing. Whether you're talking about the knights with like the long crosses that they carry, oh, amazing, or the witches amazing, in their yeah. stabs, but my, one of my favorite shots is the very end with the three witches just looking at the castle after it's been sacked. Yeah, and you're like, all right, well, shit. Did Macbeth ever have a chance? And what, what for me, the the greatest question of Macbeth, yeah. Macbeth always is. Were they just fucking with him, or was there magic at play? Like, I, and I love how you can you can totally embrace the magic and fate and destiny, or you can just say like these three people planted some seeds in Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's mind, and all hell broke loose as a result. And I think both interpretations are equally valid, and both are equally fun. And that part of that tension, or a lot of the the fun of the movie, is derived from the tension, not never quite knowing. Is the supernatural world manipulating Macbeth, or is Macbeth just power mad with ambition? Ambition, yeah, it, and and I think one of the things that Wells was was trying to do 
uh, with this film was really play up that tension between the 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 kind of paganism um, and witchcraft and and Christianity, um, which comes through in the um, the holy man, which was kind of a new character that he that he introduced um into into the story i think a kind of drawing on obviously existing characters and, and dialogue and whatever else um and and as you say that really comes through in the the um when the at the end of the film when the english army's coming and they've got their you know those the staves in the air and you've got the crosses and then you've got the scene also when um mcduff finds out that his family's been butchered and you've got the the cross there as well so um that that tension and I guess interaction between yeah Christianity and and paganism um, comes through partic- particularly strongly in in uh, in the film and that that seems to be one aspect at least that Wells was really keen to um, keen to pursue in addition to you know um, ambition and what ambition does to men um, which uh, comes up in I think mo- most of his films. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, from Kane through the other side of the wind, or even like Effort Fake and talking about Howard Hughes, ambition is something he returns to frequently, or like Hank Quinlan and Touch of Evil, or Othello and Iago and so on and so forth. A uh, lady from Shanghai, what gets him into trouble is when he stops living his simple life. The path to death, destruction, and madness is always when you try to kind of, as my stepdad used to say, get a little bit too far over your skis. And it is, I yeah. guess, and, it, and it's a cautionary tale from. Wells' own life as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it, I know, totally. Yeah, over, overreaching. But that that's what, yeah, yeah, in a way, why he was able to do so much great stuff, that ambition. And then you, and again, you're not falling on your face at some point. Um, and he was just continually picked himself up. I think it became more difficult. Is there a single movie, though, in his career, though, that you find to be unwatchable? Because I've, I like all of his movies on different levels, but for me, as weak as is Mr. Arcaden, but even even there... There are scenes that I really like and moments that I really like. Like I've never seen a Wells movie that I don't like, and I don't know if I'm just being blind because I'm such a fan. Yeah, um, the only one for me that, that 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 I can easily single out as his worst film is The Stranger. Um, yeah, and that's that that's only but 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 at the same time he was proving a point that he could do what he was told. Yeah, that he could do um, and a, a think, quick, short, low-budget, economical yep, thriller yep. and deliver it on time, on budget, and put a little money in the bank. And it was one of his few films that actually made a profit. Yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. So it's successful from that point, but watching it, you're like, he's, this isn't really what Wells is I always is forget to. that it exists. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's, yeah, he, he has a line that he says that he... In making that film, he wanted to prove that he did he didn't glow in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> so he's kind of like, you know, I'm not I'm not I can I can do he can do know, the shadow if called upon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, and, and he had some ideas like he wanted um, Agnes Moorhead to play the the um, the Edward G. Robinson detective. character, and yeah, that would have been brilliant. I mean, Agnes yeah. Moorhead could read the phone book and make it riveting, and that would have been incredible. Oh. And she would have oh, been should, su- such yeah. unconventional <laughs> casting. But I, I love her and everything, even like Bewitched, which was my first exposure to her yeah. as a kid. And sadly, she wasn't able to make the cut and um, be a part of Macbeth. But I wouldn't have minded seeing Agnes Moorhead oh. as Lady Macbeth. Yes, can you imagine how good that? Yeah, I think I think Wells yeah, had her in mind, but she was tied up with other things. But oh, it's criminal that she didn't get to play the part because Lady Macbeth. You can make a case for it as the best female character yes. that Shakespeare ever wrote. And Agnes yep. Moorhead, I think, is the best female actress that Wells ever worked with. So it would have been yep. a, a perfect marriage. Yeah. 
Well, instead of you know, you know, our damn spot, you can just imagine how good that that that, you know, like Aunt Fanny shrilly and yeah, screaming it's not the hot, shit. It's cold. Exactly, it's, like, it's no, cold. It's stress, like, that. <laughs> Oh, that scene, yeah. I'm so glad you guys mentioned that in that episode. It's so good. It's just, uh, uh, oh, I don't want to get sidetracked, but the way she puts across hysteria in that film is just amazing. I think it would have transferred perfectly to, to the end. To, Fuck to this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, like, so to me, it's like a kind of a second, second rate Mercury crew working on Macbeth. Yeah, you need his gang. You need Ray Collins. You need Joseph Cotton. You need yep. his loyal soldiers that he took with him from yep. film to film to film yep. and that make his radio shows and his early movies so memorable because you know you're going to get to hang out with the boys or even in touch of evil where you got some of these people to come back and you're like yes thank god like there's joseph cotton as the coroner even he's got like three lines but i'm just glad that he's there yeah yeah exactly it's it's um so great i guess how wells was able to yeah you know i, I guess kind of parallels with bergman in terms of having a kind of a crew of of actors that he worked really really closely with, um, well, and maybe got that, to make that, like fifty fucking movies. Yeah, he got, I, yeah. <laughs> he got to make a play in a movie a year for yeah. you know decade after decade, yeah. and so so many yeah. amazing opportunities. And, and those movies weren't necessarily big budget films, but they really got a chance to squeeze all the juice out, out, out of, of that out of that relationship. And with Wells, you just constantly thinking like, oh well, what if he had made a had this opportunity? What if he'd had that opportunity? And you're always wondering what might have been. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, yeah, if he, if he had made 50 films, it would have been fabulous, but alas. <laughs> but I mean, um, I guess that's part of the romance or the charm, like the fact that there is this element of like both tragedy in terms of forces acting upon him as well as some of his own self-inflicted problems where because you have to really find those special moments to appreciate it gives you it's like if you're in love with like uh, like the losing side in a war it just makes you have this like romantic fascination that i think enhances people's obsession with with uh with his career and it gives it just an element of tragedy that makes it a little bit bittersweet and i think that's one of the reasons that his fans are so protective of him is because they re- think they need to like they need to fight the battles for him in his absence that he's un- not around to fight those battles on, on his own behalf and so i think it's one of the reasons why wells fans almost feel like part of like this like I don't know inner circle or family at times yeah no I think I think I think yeah that's de- that's how I feel definitely is a, is a yeah you really want to kind of step in and as well known as he is and, and revered yeah you kind of always feel like you, you need to defend him in a way um, and you know he has that line about you know people only like him when he's dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, but it's true. Of, I mean, he died in 1985, yeah. and he was still working and doing things like trans, like the Transformers movie and things like that. But obviously, most people at age. No, I think it was in 1985. He was 70. But you just think like when you look like Ridley Scott, who's 83, and he's still cranking out shows and movies and that sort of thing, and then you just. I don't know why he really struggled in the 70s and how he came back to Hollywood and he was never really able to, to kind of get things up and going. And it's just a shame that at a time where his gifts would have been so perfect yeah. for the kind of countercultural, kind of anti-hero Hollywood of the 70s, that he just wasn't able to get buddied up with the right filmmakers. I mean, the fact that Peter Bogdanovich didn't find a way to put him in a movie yeah, is, I know. Be- is yes. bewildering to me. Because he wanted... Uh, who. He wanted Wells to play. Uh, I can't remember what the film is now. Um, who who won Best Supporting Actor in one of Bogdanovich's? Bogdanovich's uh, probably Ben films? Johnson in Last Picture Show. 
Yes. So I think Wells was going to be cast in that role. Oh, wow. Um, and oh, well, Ben Johnson kills think, it. So, yeah, Sam the Lion. It's yeah, hard well, to imagine anybody else playing it. Because I think Wells said that whoever plays that role is going to win will win the... It's a good part. Yeah, it's a, it's a good yeah. meaty part, without a doubt. Yeah, Ben Johnson, um, because he didn't want to play it. He, kept, he Ben Johnson didn't like to be in a movie with any swear words or nudity. He was very old-fashioned. He's like, oh, there are too many... He would just say, there are too many words. And anyway, he had to beg and plead to get Ben Johnson to accept that, <laughs> that Oscar-winning part. It's, it's such a strange thing, but... I, that's a, probably a, another subject for another day that there were so many filmmakers like William Friedkin who said that Wells was their favorite filmmaker, but they didn't put him to work. And you watch a yeah. movie like Compulsion or watch a movie like Moby Dick and you see how good he is or watch um, like Catch-22, the Mike Nichols film. He's so good in other people's movies and that he wasn't used more frequently. Once again, maybe just because he was difficult. I don't know. But I, I, I wish Joe Dorowski had been able to complete his Dune just so we could have seen Dude. him as Baron Harkonnen. He would have been a brilliant Harkonnen. Yeah, would have been. Yeah, he's... he's and- he kind of underplayed his own own acting and was was insecure, um, quite insecure about it. I mean, you know, just look at his use of like prosthetic nose throughout his films, and he was, you know, yeah, tr- trying to trying to always trying to cover up something. But I, I mean, he's I haven't seen a Wells performance that isn't, you know, compelling in some way. I mean, not perfect, but I, I kind of I can't like I see him appear in a film and i'm just like yes this is i can really kind of yeah, even like con- get to know your rabbit the brian de palma film where he oh, was apparently <laughs> he was very difficult and brian de palma adored him and wor- worshipped him and looked up to him and he felt totally ridiculous directing wells but wells is good and he's got he's got some some interesting scenes but let's get back to macbeth what do you think of orson in these action scenes because every once in a while whether it's lady from shanghai or the fight against grandy and touch of evil orson will insert himself into action scenes and so here we get to actually see wells in armor whipping a sword out and throwing down and i think if you love wells it's very charming watching this kind of uncoordinated beginning <laughs> to become fat guy yeah, swinging, yeah, swinging yeah. the big sword around but um i, I that's it's, it's a rare thing to see him in that kind of setting yeah it's a little bit it does come come across as a bit a bit awkward but uh at the same time he, you know he's such a such a big guy um and and you know exerting his presence and you know when he's when he's um in Macbeth when he's putting on his armor um for the final battle he's you know putting on his um putting on his chest chest plate and and kind of getting ready ready it's kind of yeah it's 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 I I wouldn't want to kind of confront him um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like he he perhaps he could have been a good Henry V. Like if you think of him in that right. setting, and then like place him in that scene, like the the band of brothers scene from Henry V. He probably could have really brought that to life. He's one of those like he always talks about that in the interview with Peter Bogdanovich, and this is Orson Welles. How certain actors are king actors, and no matter what play they're yes. in or what movie in, they play a king type role. And Orson Welles is a king actor, and he would have been. Yeah. I think he would have been a great king in just about. Any Shakespeare play, whether you're talking about Richard the Third or Henry the Fifth or whatever the case might be. Yeah, he, he he has that 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 presence and that distinction is really interesting that he makes, um, uh, in terms of yeah those those t- two types of of, of characters um, or you know performances that are like required. Michael McLemore was not a king actor. Michael McLemore was born to play yeah. Iago, but he would not Iago, be a good yeah. Macbeth. Oh yeah, he's he's so good, Iago. And that, that that's another thing. Uh, this uh, Wells, you know, experiences the Gate Theatre with Hilton Edwards and um, Mac Lemoyer, and and how important that was again to his his uh, love for the stage um, and and Shakespeare. Um, and I think I think they did. 
think they performed Hamlet there during that period when he was in Ireland. Um, yeah, I mean, he was like a 16-year-old yeah. charlatan and liar who bluffed yep, yep, his way yeah. onto the stage in Ireland. <laughs> and they, and they, knew, they knew as well. They yeah. like, I, this guy's got something. Let's work with him. Yeah, he's, I mean, they complete. say that they were charmed by his bravado. Whether or not they believed his tall tales or not, it doesn't really matter because the result is they started working together and that was the beginning of his professional career. And obviously yeah. it was very fruitful because he would bring back some of those guys as part of his gang on Othello, which obviously had to be shot in bits and pieces. But yeah, Othello's got some pretty extraordinary sequences as well. Um, but what do you think about the choice with Macbeth where Wells decided to record all the dialogue in advance? Yeah. Because a lot of people's complaints, and I think it is justified in a lot of films, that at, basically after Magnificent Ambersons, from that point onward... You start getting kind of dodgy sound in a lot of his movies, yep. and a lot of times that was because he was shooting with different actors at different points, and they couldn't afford to be recording on the uh, on, at the that particular time. And so you start seeing movies like the tri- trial, where you're thinking to yourself, "How many actors as well as doing the voice for?" Me? <laughs> I'm hearing <laughs> his voice them. pop up yeah. a lot, and I feel like yeah. with Macbeth, you start to get that, and it really, I think restricts the spontaneity of the actors if yeah. they're having to work with that pre-recorded dialogue, and it's something he even. Great debated doing with Magnificent Ambersons, but I'm glad he didn't on that film. Yeah, no, no, I think I think that's um, a good point. It, it does come across a little bit stilted, and also when you realise that that's the process they went through, you start to view the film in a, in a slightly different way. I think it was done to save time, I think. Yeah. Um, he could shoot multiple scenes at the same time and not have to right. worry about recording dialogue then and there. Yeah, um, and, he, and he said, uh, maybe it's something to do with his... Uh, um, upbringing radio where he, he really really wanted to control the kind of auditory landscape in a film um, and uh, you know he, he said lots of occasions you know the importance of, of, of sound in a film and I, it, I think he said something around Kane that you know you should be able to watch that with your eyes closed and still be connected and engaged oh, yeah. and um, I totally agree I mean with Kane it's got one of the best soundtracks I mean, take all the Bernard Herman music out and why would you but if even if you did yeah. it'd still be a fascinating radio show that's it so i think that there's an element of that but maybe that's not always a good thing um and i agree i think i think to me at least thinking through um you know how a film might be made or should be made is that 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 spontaneity of of, of how, how the actors um you know communicate with each other and, and communicate you know the, the story to, to the audience so i think and also i think that causes issues for example with othello yeah as you as you say that the, the the audio if that's pretty pretty dodgy um and yeah it makes it makes it dif- more difficult to to connect with um well that's what a lot of people say about youtube people will forgive everything on youtube in terms of bad production quality except for bad yeah. sound if there's bad yeah. sound a lot of people just won't watch it and i think that happens with some movies they're used to a certain level of professional polish and if it's not there it makes the whole movie difficult to engage with. And so I think for Wells historians, when they know all the problems he was having to overcome in the context of making the movie, they forgive a lot of those technical shortcomings because they also know that he was so eager to experiment with soundtracks and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. But it is it is an obstacle for a lot of his later movies when it comes to people discovering his films. Yeah. Um, and maybe it also speaks to his... I mean, he wasn't a control freak, but but um, he, he, he's... Um, he, a certain element of, of, of um, perfectionism to, to what he was aiming aiming for. Um, and I mean, I think it's a it's a myth that he never wanted to finish a film, um, and that he—that's total you know, bullshit. I mean, Wells. Yeah, yeah. 
He wanted yeah, to be agreed. a successful filmmaker. He wanted to entertain yeah. people. It's like when you look yeah. at theater, radio, and and movies, he didn't want to have this kind of maverick, bohemian, wandering gypsy lifestyle. He kind of fell into it over time, but what he really needed, and I say this all the time, he just needed a good partner in crime who could work with him, who could protect him from his worst impulses. And early on in his career, John Houseman played yeah. that role. And later in life, he was left to his own devices, and he, Wells was a maniac. He's an incredibly creative person, but not necessarily the best person when it came to staying organized. And so it's just a shame that he didn't have like a great partner in crime that he could kind of hitch. Like when you look at someone like uh, Ron Howard, and um, oh, I'm totally blanking on his producing partner. He's had for like a hundred movies, but uh, Brian Grazer. But they were just born to work together. And admittedly, Ron yeah. Howard's a very different kind of filmmaker, but you've got that classic director-producer dynamic. And Wells just really needed someone like Alexander Korda. Korda, or yeah. Or like, um, you know, um, who, who's the producer on uh, Gone with the Wind? I'm totally blanking on. Um, uh, what, what, like, you did like Duel in the Sun. David O. Selznick. He needed someone like David ah, O. Selznick, Selznick yeah, yeah. with whom he could work again and again. But sadly, that relationship just never emerged. Yeah, and, and uh, part, part of that, um, you know, Wells' perception of, what, what is the role of a producer? Um, didn't have <laughs> the nicest things to say, at least later in his, his life, uh, reading this book at the moment, um, around, you know, producers don't actually do anything. They turn up on the set for five minutes a day and have a five-hour luncheon. Absolutely. So he's, least, the yeah, smart producers, that's what they do. I've seen, yeah. <laughs> I've seen all kinds of producers. My, my favorite right. co- uh, contrast in producers was on the film Hannibal where Dino yep. De Laurentiis would visit the set but he wasn't going to sit there in the sun and cook and sweat and deal with problems. He wanted to go back to the office and smoke cigars and watch soccer games yeah. and things like that. But Bronco yeah. Lustig, his Croatian partner in crime, was there on the set all day, every day, in the chair beside Ridley Scott. And sometimes he'd go hours without saying anything, but he was watching everything. And yeah. if a problem emerged, he was on it. And so it was, it was interesting seeing that contrast in producing styles. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I mean, the Houseman relationship was, was really you know foundational to to um for example the voodoo Macbeth. so yeah. houseman roped in wells to work on that as part of the federal theater project um and so i mean if we're thinking yeah Macbeth here that 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 um that play which eventually would feed into the film um kind of started with with houseman bringing bringing wells in and yeah that relationship's really interesting <sighs> i don't know it's hard to i i haven't read the houseman autobiography um so and i know there's a lot of he said she said bitter feelings between the two of them and they had a very acrimonious split yep yep and i I think it was a yeah complicated relationship i don't know that necessarily hausman's feelings were reciprocated by wells in the way that he, he perhaps wanted um and again reading these the book at the moment roger hill seems to push back a bit when wells starts to uh, overly criticised Hausman. Um, I mean, he's he, he agrees with Wells that um, Hausman was a bit of a uh, megalomaniac in, in in a certain way, but but he he tries to remind Wells that you know Hausman did some you know good work with you. Yeah, they did a lot of work. They, I mean, the most prolific, commercially successful period of Wells's career was with John Hausman. Hausman, yeah, yeah. So you you wonder what what what, what might have been if that um, relationship had of I mean, been I sustained. can't remember where I read this, but I remember at one point Wells almost maybe it was Simon Callow who fleshes out, but that perhaps Wells thought that or seemed to suggest that. John Houseman basically wanted to have a, a role in the hay with Wells, and that Wells wasn't willing yep. to do so. I don't know if that's legitimate or not. This, once again, this is gossip from 
80 years ago. So who the hell yeah. knows what was going on? Very proud people, very dynamic people, very creative people. And yeah. inevitably, just there was friction and the relationship, it was torn asunder. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps um, to... to um, yeah, their personalities clashed a bit too much. And, and, you know, out of that short period, you got some great work. And if you look, you know, historically, relationship between artists and, and muses or, you know, those people in their inner circle, um, sometimes those things don't last long. But while they do last, you get some, you know, great stuff happening. So, yeah, that, that idea of, you know, Wells connecting with a, with a producer that really could have, you know, guided him and, and, and um, you know, injected some, some responsibility uh, into the way that he was operating. Like, imagine if Val Luton, I mean, Val Luton was working at RKO at the time, working with like Jacques Teneur and doing all these great things, yeah. like uh, cat people, like super low budget, yeah. atmospheric, awesome. yeah. moody, shadowy films yeah. that are very reminiscent of Macbeth. Of, yes, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, cat people, definitely. That, and the, the, so the, imagine if he'd gone off and made five movies with Val Luton, it's like $700,000, yeah. like film noir, thrillers, things like that, like, yeah. you know, hard boiled murder stories. That might have been the best possible relationship he could have possibly pursued, but unfortunately, Val Luton was spoken for and already working with a bunch of other people. Yeah, yeah. Another case of what could have been. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, it, <laughs> but I feel like um, for people who like that Val Luton era or that Val Luton school of filmmaking over at RKO, Macbeth has a lot of overlap in terms of the overall style and approach. Wherefore was that cry? The queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out. Brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So uh, what do you think of Roddy McDowell, no longer a little boy like in um, uh, How Green Was My Valley? Now he's a, a young man, uh, and I feel like he's probably one of the only real like name actors who pops up in this. Yeah, I, I, I think um, as uh, Malcolm, you know, the king, or king to be, it's... Yeah, definitely one of the better performances um, in the film, actually. Uh, um, and I consider, like, look at um, O'Hurley's Macduff, who just for me does not really work very well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's um, a weird, hammy, yes, kind of awkward yes. performance. Yeah, yeah. It's like your family's been butchered and murdered, and he just kind of stands there and kind of doesn't really. I don't know. Yeah, to me that that was uh, a letdown. Um, and you know, the, you know, rest of the cast's okay, but but it's it's 
Yeah, Wells is a standout, and I think McDowell's good as 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 Malcolm. Well, I like the scene where he's talking about the guy who just got beheaded, and you've got the king. He's waxing poetic about how much he trusted him, and that's one of the real sequences where Wells kind of doesn't depart from the text. But with Shakespeare, oftentimes there's so little action in the play itself. It just says like yep. they fight, or someone falls down, or someone yeah. leaves. He inserts this giant beheading sequence where you actually get to see some filmmaking, and it's one of the more visual sequences. And then Roddy McDowell comes in, and they start having this. There's a lengthy scene about it, but I, I really like that sequence. Yeah, the um, the beheading, the the drumming is is excellent. The and I mean the, the angles in this film are pretty. Crazy, well, it reminds really. me of the opening yeah. scene in Othello, where it's not in the play yeah. Othello, where yeah. he gives us the Iago yeah. execution sequence, and it's At like a funeral yeah. slash execution. Yep. And then you get the prologue, and then the play begins. Yep. But that's yep. all well, it's just fleshing it out and turning it into a yep. movie, get, getting the movie. camera up and moving. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and and yeah, from the get go, kind of getting getting the audience invested. Yeah, I'm just just thinking of the the as I mentioned before, Jeanette Nolan as Lady Macbeth is okay. I thought her. I don't have any issue with the Scottish Burr. I, I didn't find it a problem, except perhaps with her on some occasions. Um, it came across a little bit. Uh, jarring um and again i just you kind of see that performance thing you know what could Moorhead have done i mean it's unfair to to do that um but uh, yeah i guess also if you're gonna do like uh, an authentic scottish play then maybe just go to scotland and get a bunch of scottish actors and so on and so forth yeah but there, there are yeah. too many people I, I my i think the most beautiful accent in the world is the scottish accent but i can't do one and it's like you, i feel like that's a, that's a tough accent as someone who's from australia <laughs> yeah. i'm i doubt yeah. you like Watching a movie like Django Unchained, where Quentin Tarantino shows up at the end and does an Australian yeah, accent, like, ah, God, like don't do that. It sounds yeah, horrible. It, yeah, no, it's one of the harder ones to, to to pull off. It always sounds a bit funny. Um, but it, yeah, I don't know. I kind of, yeah, initially watching this, yeah, the the the, it's a little bit odd at the beginning. You're like, why are they putting these on? It this seems like a, a unnecessary kind of fabrication as you say you just get scottish actors in um but once i got into it i thought yeah that's that's a, it's a minor a minor um drawback on the film except for yeah nolan i think hers is her, her kind of oh actually and the other one is um wells's uh, who played the um Bankwell? no the 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 child the um wasn't beatrice christopher christopher wells as, oh yeah yeah yeah, as the yeah, child. yeah. he, he puts like the, that's put, yeah put that's child to work accent. for to get to get to get massacred on on screen yeah. that's a pretty visceral can, scene oh, too that is and i'm thinking this is wells ordering the you know the, the butchering of his actual you know child <laughs> within the film with like and this really to, stark malicious close-up yes. with the knife it's like a slasher yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. what the fuck's going yeah. on here yeah i know the axe is just like yeah but then I think, okay, because then um, like Beatrice Wells turns up in Chimes at Midnight. And I'm Absolutely. Thinking, yeah, she's, her performance is that is better than Christopher in this. Not that Beatrice Wells um, introduced the screening of Chimes at Midnight that I attended at the film forum, and she brought this oh. giant book of photographs from the set, and she was passing it around, but she was telling all these great stories about the production. But, yeah, she was, she was delightful. Yeah. So um, now it's interesting when, when um, yeah, you see um, Wells' kids pop up in his films when he had such a – yeah, it's kind of fraught relationship. He was a bad really father. A... No one, no one's gonna. Yeah, get... yeah. People can celebrate <laughs> Wells the filmmaker. They can celebrate yeah. Wells the actor. Wells the storyteller. Wells the raconteur. 
if he was remiss in his duties in any major part of his life, it was being around to be a good father. It's like, if you are married to your work, then be married to your work and don't spawn a bunch of kids because you're just going to leave yeah. them feeling helpless. But I guess a lot yeah. of filmmakers do that where they recognize, shit, like I've spent so little time with my kids, I'll give them a job on the movie and that way I get a chance to spend some more time with them. And that happens over and over and over again with right. filmmakers from or actors from any era. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting, that, that dynamic. Um, yeah, who played, um, I thought, Seton, the Seton character, I don't know, George Trillo, it's telling me. I thought that was, yeah, interesting uh, portrayal and, and kind of, I think at some point, um, Wells, as Macbeth says, Satan. I was reading around and people, are, you know, reading into, you know, what was, I don't know, is that a part of the, I'm not sure if that's part of the original kind of Shakespeare. Um, yeah, I don't know if that was a slip or not. I would have to, I would yeah. have to check the original text. I think it's a slip that people were, you know, re- reading into, you know, what what perhaps might have been going on there. Oh, I just came across this funny bit from my notes. Wells is complaining about his costume, about how he said he thought he looked like the Statue of Liberty, and he said that his his costume should have been sent back. But he said there's not enough dough for nothing for another costume, and there's nothing in stock at the Western Company that would fit him, so he was stuck with it. But all these great scenes, he also joked about how his best crowd scene was shot when the ma- the mass forces of Macduff's army yeah. are charging the castle. <laughs> but he says the reason there was so much urgency to it is that they were breaking for lunch. And yeah. once again, is that true? I don't know, but uh, it, I don't it, care. It, 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 it makes a yeah. good story. And for anybody who loves Wells and loves Bogdanovich, I'm sure at this point you've already listened to it. But there's, you can either get the book "This Is Orson Wells," which is just which I read several times in college, or you can just listen to it on YouTube. I think it's a three and a half hour interview, and the audio is not great, but it's just Wells hanging out in the late '60s talking about his career. And at that point, I think he's on the set of Catch Twenty Two, so it, yep. he's not in a desperate state, and so he, he doesn't seem bitter or anything like that. I think if they'd done that interview in the early '80s, it might have had a different tone. But I, I find those interviews absolutely riveting. Yeah, no, they've I've, I've read the book yet. Yeah, uh, again, another interesting uh, relationship that Wells Bogdanovich um, uh, dynamic. Um, well, how would you rank this film if you were to? Because Wells didn't make that many features as a director. If you were to place it somewhere in the hierarchy, is it closer to the bottom, around the middle, closer to the top? Like, how how does Macbeth rank for you? Because I would definitely place it in his bottom half, but I wouldn't place it at the bottom. I, I think Arkadin's below it. I think the strangers oh, okay. below it, but I'm not sure mm. what else would be below it. I, Journey into Fear, I don't even really count because he was kind of co-directing with somebody else, and he didn't yeah. really even get credited. So I don't even include that in the list. And obviously, it's all true; it was unfinished. Uh, but whatever he did finish, I would place mm-hmm. that below. But I think if you compare it to Lady from Shanghai, I like Shanghai better. I like Othe- yeah. I like Othello better. I definitely like Ambersons and Kane better. Like if you look at the forties and fifties, it's you know this and the Stranger for me are at the bottom of the of the forties pack. Bottom. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely the Stranger for me is is at the bottom. Yeah, I don't know. Like I, re- I really like a- Ambersons, but it, I don't know. It's it's to me I I can see what could have been, and it gets in the way of me appreciating what the film actually is. So to me, I actually probably get more. Like sad kind of enjoyment, saddened by watching Ambersons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Macbeth yeah. feels relatively complete, such as it is, even though it was butchered yeah. at the time of its release and had like thirty minutes removed. Move from it, yeah. I, I, I watched the, the 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 you know the forty eight cut of Macbeth, and I I I see Wells. I see a Wells film. Sometimes the issue I have with Ambersons is I watch it and I, and I, I there's a bit of a too many um, other fingerprints. 
yeah, disjunction between, you know, what's actually there and what I want to be there. So for me, that it kind of falls down the list a little bit. Um, but, you know, like Macbeth's, yeah, certainly not Othello or, or Chimes at Midnight. To me, Othello is almost my favorite Wells film. Um, Interesting. Well, that means yeah. what we're going to have to do then is reunite and do a proper deep dive into Othello because Othello, not only is it a good movie, the story of the making of oh, is bananas. Yes. <laughs> and there's a fabulous, fabulous book about that, um, which was actually written by an Italian academic and it was recently translated into English about Wells's time in Italy. Um, and a lot of that is about Othello. Um, and it, yeah, it's, as you said, I mean, contrast to Macbeth, like, you know, three weeks versus what, like five years or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you know, someone would, um, you know, throw a punch on one continent and then they'd, they'd film the rest of it on another continent. <laughs> it's just like Wells, you know, his ability, um, to, to have a, to have a, uh, you know, a film in his head, Yep. And kind of to edit, edit, edit um, on the go, and then obviously also, you know, post post production. It's um, why editing. I find the other side of the wind to be unsatisfying because I know that if you read about yeah. how he shot these films, where he shot them in pieces, and obviously the best yeah. test case of that is Othello. We know that the final product was basically a work in progress in his mind, but he didn't necessarily organize the footage in a traditional fashion, making it very difficult for somebody else to edit his films. And he would mark scenes in really unconventional ways. And so while there are scenes in The Other Side of the Wind that feel like Wells and his signature editing style at that time, there's a lot of that film that that does not feel like Wells. And it's almost like, oh, this is the Wells part? This is a Netflix yeah. part. This is a Wells part. This is a Netflix yeah. part. Yeah. And um, it just, the rhythms are off in, in certain sequences. Oh. But with Othello, yeah. even though he shot it in this disjointed fashion over years, he'd go off and act in a movie, scrape together yeah. some cash, shoot a few more scenes, and so on. I mean, the absolute worst way to make a movie. But in the yeah. end, it all came together. And yeah. I think, apart from Wells' performance, which I, I think is one of the weaker aspects of Othello, yep. it's, a, it's a damn good yeah. fucking Shakespeare movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it won't get yeah, this the the get sidetracked, but it's visually it's just yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. It's 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 great. Um and and um just quickly back to, to you mentioned Arcade and I only just recently saw the the criterion kind of full comprehensive. Which has like version. nine different cuts of the film on you're like well, which one do yeah. I watch? And like, Yeah, I watched the longest one. <laughs> yeah. Well they, they was... don't even really give you a roadmap because there's no official nah. version of Arcaden yeah. that like is like Wells approved. Right. There's a bunch of different rival yeah. cuts and it's yeah. kinda up to you to figure out what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, because I watched that just recently again and and in, uh, first watching it a while ago I was like, yeah, it's not really that great apart from the, the you know the scorpion That's and the frog scene. story. Yeah. Um, but watching this time, I could, I could kind of, yeah, appreciate it more, I think. Um, so anyway, I think, yeah, each time I come back to, to Wells's films, as, as you said earlier, and the general public there, you know, like, okay, yeah, this is, I, mean, I think I've seen Arcaden four times. So I mean, it's one of those things where I might poo poo it a bit, but anytime you watch a movie four times, something, um, something's yeah. going on and there are some scenes <laughs> exactly that I really right. like. And, yeah. uh, what about Fountain of Youth? Have you ever seen his made for TV oh, movie? I have not seen that, no. Well, I you, need it, to. <laughs> it took, that was the last... It was one of the things where for years and years and years I, I hesitated to watch it because I knew once I saw it, the journey was going to be over and I'd have no more Orson Welles films to see. And I finally hunkered down and watched it. It is delightful. You're like, oh my oh, God, like how come he didn't make make like 20 of these? Like, I feel like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and like Twilight Zone yeah. and all these other anthology kind of format shows... He would have been an, an ideal fit for any of them. Perfect. And Fountain of Youth gives you a great 
taste of what he could have done as just a straight to TV filmmaker. Well, yeah, that, 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 you know, he saw the potential in, in television, but it never quite clicked. And at least into the eighties, he was really, uh, yeah, critical of, of what it had become. And yeah. a lot of it was, you know, he was spot on, it was trash and it was, it was, um, you know, it wasn't following the, 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 you know, the radio model where the, the sponsor would determine the content. It's that, you know, it's the television stations themselves. Um, so yeah, there's, again, there's a, you know, you know, what could have been with that. Um, yeah, there was no and, Campbell's and, and Soup also, Playhouse for him to make yeah, dignified right. <laughs> entertainment for, te- for TV. Yeah. But, but he clearly and, recognized that television's a different medium than film and it's a different yep. medium from radio yep. and he makes yep. a TV show. I mean, The Fountain of Youth is not pretending to be Touch of Evil. He shoots it in a totally different way and it feels appropriate for television, but it also still feels like a, a Wells film and I, I think it's, uh, it's yeah. a very solid little story. Yeah, yeah. We also uh, shouldn't forget uh, too much Johnson. Oh yeah, absolutely. We got, I guess a, it took a, like decades for that to be even like rediscovered and re- restored. But I have seen it. It's and, fun. Yeah, I mean, you got uh, Joseph Cotton running around, and for a got long it. time there were just stills from it, and it was in all the history books. But eventually, I can't remember. Martin Kessler told me yeah. where they found it, but it, it took fucking like seventy years before they finally yeah. found that thing. Yeah, and, and I mean, it was from a the, the stage play, so it was actually they filmed that as a part of the production on stage and so you're thinking wow that's really ahead of its time um and then and then you know it comes across as a as a pretty pretty entertaining film um yep. and cotton cotton yeah anything he, he's in I'll, I'll kind of watch he's got that yeah charisma and kind of he's, he's a he's a um very um easy actor to kind of um he's, he's adorable know. he's got that virginia gentleman yeah, thing going yeah. and yeah. from yeah. citizen kane up through heaven's gate I mean, it's like 40 years of performances where I really like him, but obviously Shadow of a Doubt, inc- incredible performance. He's brilliant in um, uh, The Third, Third Man, Man, obviously, just one of the, one of the all-time great movies. Yeah, Joseph Cotton, he, he, was, he was extraordinary. And if not for Orson Welles, who knows if we ever would have even seen him in any movies, yeah. period. But he's got, yeah. some, he's got great performances both within and outside of the, outside the career of, of Orson Welles. But yeah. they were such, such a great duo. Great buddies, yeah. yeah. Well, any closing words on the play Macbeth, the adaptation of Macbeth? I feel like we were zigzagging all over the place. I don't know if we actually really like, reviewed the movie, but it's one of those things where you're talking about Welles, it's almost impossible to talk about the movie in an objective fashion because yeah. there's so many other stories that are interwoven that it makes talking about his films, I adore talking about, but it's hard to just sit down and just review a Wells movie in isolation without embracing all the history surrounding it as well. Surrounding it. Yeah. Um, just trying to, trying to think. I, I mean, I know, I know another thing that, that Wells said was that he's, um, uh, he always thought that, that you needed two actors to play Macbeth pre and post kind of regicide the killing of, of, of Duncan, and and so he always thought that that was a real challenge, uh, real challenge as an actor. And I guess the other thing we we perhaps didn't um, touch on was that relationship between the the Voodoo Macbeth in '36 and then the um, the film version in. He also did a stage production in Utah, as like yeah. a as like a dry run, and yeah. he borrowed yeah, that's from right. both productions for his overall yes. approach to the film. Yeah, and and if you look at the the set from the Voodoo Macbeth, the stairs. They're kind of replicated in the film. Oh yeah, it's like an it's an identical. It's like an it's like a key cut and paste. And it's like oh, that works. We'll yeah, put, in 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 the movie it goes. Yeah, and if you watch the the remaining footage of that um, original Voodoo Macbeth production, it's yeah, it's even that little five minutes is it's really you can see he, he was he was 
you know, it was seri- for him. It was a serious kind of production. It he's wasn't like a 21, gimmick. 22. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> it's bananas when, yeah, he, when it's he made insane. that. I, I love that picture outside yeah. the theater in Harlem, where the street is just a yeah. mob of people, and they're so yeah. fired up. And there's a kid going. Yeah, yeah. And, and it looks like they're having <laughs> yeah. so much fun. And I feel like yeah. where yep. it looks like like James Brown's in town performing, and like, yep. and like partying their faces off. It's like that's how Shakespeare should be brought to life with as much fun and excitement as possible. And if you want to have a, a, a brilliant, nuanced performance within that, great. But Shakespeare was mainstream. He was like, no, he wasn't the Michael Bay of the Elizabethan age, but he was a <laughs> successful yeah. He wasn't playing just to kings and queens. He was also playing yeah. to regular people, and I think that's yeah. one thing people have to keep in mind. Mind, yeah. No, I think that gets lost. Um, that gets lost. Um, other thoughts about the the, the actual film. Um, uh, yeah, I mean the whole the holy kind of holy man figure is interesting, um, and particularly at the end how he just gets like speared. <laughs> yeah, he's standing down there, and he's like. Macbeth launches the the spear off there, um, and how I think yeah he's kind of the holy man's trying to uh, negotiate that tension between Christianity and and, and paganism, um, and and not necessarily you know trying to control things, but kind of oversee and watch over. Um, but there's not a lot he can do. Um, it's funny how Christianity, when it made it into certain parts of like the British Isles, they didn't really replace the existing religion. They just kind of merged no, with the existing merged. religion. That's why you have things like yeah. Christmas trees. You're like, where the fuck do those come from? Yeah. <laughs> but it's like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's leftover stuff from pagan religions. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that they're kind of yeah cultural artifacts. Um, and and also the back to the witches, the the, the kind of at the start how they make the Macbeth kind of clay figure. Absolutely. And then at the end, um, you know, when uh, Macduff um, beheads uh, Macbeth, he does it in like one swoop, whereas I think, you know, traditionally it's he stabs him and then beheads him. And it's kind of like yeah, pretty brutal. And then when that happens, you see that the clay figure gets um, decapitated, which is kind of, you know, that that's, you know, Wells was he wasn't into symbolism. Um, but it's almost like the Norns from Norse mythology, how when you're born, they have a string that represents the beginning and ending of your life. And it's almost like Wells, not Wells, Macbeth, he almost, like his fate was predetermined in a lot of ways. But once again, as I mentioned before, this part of the fun of it is trying to figure out to what degree does Macbeth, is he the architect of his own undoing? Or does he have control over his own destiny? And that's what makes the... I've, I've read the play several times. I've seen it several times. And I wouldn't say it's Shakespeare's best play, but I find it to be his most entertaining play. And it's the one that I return to most frequently. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 uh, perhaps the scene that really... I mean, there's a few of them. There's the floating dagger um, scene in this, which the use of the, the kind of... The way... Wells plays with with the focus, um, and and then also the the scene with um, the the ghost of Banquo at the feast and how he just loses his shit properly there. Yeah, and and yeah, it's an amazing scene Wells in that, and, and particularly when he's sitting in the chair and everyone's about to leave, and he's just kind of got this massive figure. You got the low angle, um, and and yeah, he's kind of you really at that point start to appreciate the kind of disintegration of this guy or right, let's say you're programming a double a triple feature for a movie theater and you're having to program throne of blood the polanski macbeth and the wells macbeth back to back in what order would you program the films for people to have the best possible experience in terms of entertainment value watching it all the way through because for me i think i would just show them in the order in which they were released i'd start with wells go into kurosawa 
finish strong with yeah. Kaminsky. Yeah, no, I think I think I think that would. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that would be. Uh, it would be the, the the yeah the best way to kind of um, yeah present those because you get in each of them they're, they're, there's a you know a different a different focus as I said with um, Polanski the time he made it he was you know going through a lot and it's an understatement <laughs> yeah um, but yeah and it'd be interesting because you you have the same material um, and in that sense you know the same story but but the films are all touching on different themes um, and so. Um, as a, as a as a triple feature that would really yeah I think speak speak a lot to you know Shakespeare as you said is 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 for everyone he's kind of it, it, there's something in what he's trying to say that that everyone can kind of tap into and and find entertaining or you know thought provoking or you know meditation on you know ethics and morals and and you know relationships between men and women and well, it's also interesting to see in which of his mo- which of his plays have been adapted most frequently, obviously with like Hamlet, you've got the Franco Zeffirelli, you've got the Laurence Olivier, and you've got the Kenneth Branagh. And I think of all three of those, even though it takes the most liberties, I might actually prefer the the Zeffirelli just because I saw it in the theater when I was 14 and it had a a big impact on me. It was just so much fun. But then obviously Romeo and Juliet, you've got the Zeffirelli again, and of course you've got the Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, but that's a play that they keep coming back to. And it's yep. interesting, there's certain plays, or Henry V has been adapted several times, there's certain Shakespeare plays that people keep coming back to, and then there are others that go totally, completely mm. ignored. And it blows my mind, there hasn't been like this like amazing King Lear. I mean, obviously, yeah. Kurosawa made Ron, which is King Lear, but it's right. not like a strict, faithful adaptation, but that's yeah. the best we're going to get, probably, is, is Ron, which is like the definitive King Lear adaptation. Well, yeah, well, Wells was trying to put that together just around when he was about you know in 84 um was getting lear made along with working on um cradle based on you know the cradle will rock yep. um they were the two projects kind of at the end there and Which yeah again tim I mean, robbins totally screwed up when uh, when he made it in the late 90s me i actually walked out of cradle will rock as soon as well showed up on the right. stage and i saw how they were portraying him, i was like you know what Life is too short. And I was like 23 at the time, and so I was probably way too young to be saying it's too <laughs> short. But I walked right out of but Cradle of Rock. But I heard the uh, myth I mean, that Wells died uh, on his desk with the screenplay yeah. for King Lear laid out like right. on, in front of him. That's probably not the reality. He probably died in a much more in un, in a way lacking in El, dignity. Elvis like, yeah, on the toilet or something. Yeah, yeah, but um, but I, I love the idea that he was trying to bring King Lear to the to the film to the screen because obviously King Lear he was old enough. Like you need an old actor. But the my favorite, I think my one of the best versions of King Lear I've heard. RSC did a radio production, which I had on cassette in the late 90s. And I used to listen to it while driving around. And it had John Gilgood as King Lear. And it was oh, wow. Extra- okay, and, it was, yeah. and it was extraordinary. He really just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. But yeah, but King Lear's just waiting there to be uh, to be adapted properly. Adapted, yeah. Well, Gilgood was, one, was, you know, to Wells, probably, you know, the, the pinnacle of kind of Shakespearean <laughs> actors. And, you know, of Chimes of Midnight. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, like just like perfect. Um, I mean, yeah, there's so much to, to, to like about that film. Um, well, what we're going to do is we're going to circle back in a little while. We'll tackle Othello and then we'll circle back again and we'll tackle Chimes of Midnight. And slowly Chimes but surely, we'll check off all these yeah. Shakespearean boxes. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, anything you want to say in terms of your social media or anything you're working on, like you want to plug or promote before we draw this to a close? Um, yeah, I guess just, yeah, if anyone's um, up for a chat about Wells or, um, yeah, philosophy film stuff or um, into, like, Fred Wiseman docos. Nice. Um, or, yeah, like, I'm, yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of my, along with Wells, my, my 
your go-to. favorite filmmaker, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, Twitter, yeah, um, at Pinball is, and always happy to have, have a chat about um, film or, or whatever. Well, I can't thank you enough for listening to the show as long as you have, and I, it's always a pleasure when somebody who likes the show pitches an idea, and I'm like, fuck yeah, that sounds amazing, let's do it. And so I can't remember really how we started talking about doing an, uh, an episode, but I'm thrilled that we finally got a chance to do so, and let's definitely plan on doing another down the road. Yeah, definitely, and um, thanks again, James, for having me on and um, indulging me for my um, Wells obsession, hey, I guess. In a we're, way. we're all in this together. When it comes to fans of Wells, they, they are all welcome to come on Wrong Reel and rant about uh, rant about the, the divine Orson. Yeah, so um, thanks again. I um, yeah, look forward to, to, to chatting again soon. Very cool. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Please remember to rate, review, etc. You can always hunt me down on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you want some short-form content, you can find my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock, where I've been getting all kinds of abuse about my latest review for the new Star Trek show, Star Trek Lower Decks. But, uh, you know, check it out, my video, and uh, you can decide for yourself if I was overly harsh. But more importantly than anything... Hunt down some of these books on Wells. The Simon Callow books, you really can't go wrong. Joseph McBride, you can't go wrong. Jonathan Rosenbaum's really good. David Thompson's really good. You know, the interviews of Peter Bogdanovich. There's so many writers and filmmakers who've done a great job of fleshing out his legacy as a filmmaker. Or watch the documentary, The Love Me When I'm Dead. There's, there's so much great stuff out there to enjoy these days if you really want to do the deep dive on Wells. And obviously... Chuck Macbeth and decide for yourself what you think about his adaptation of the Scottish play. But we can't thank you enough for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>